Hey everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. Mark here. You're about to listen to Matt Summers, the campus pastor at Mountain View. Enjoy. Good morning, Mountain View. Good morning. Good to see you all. So glad you could join us today. Very special welcome to you if it is your first time here with us. My name is Matt Summers, campus pastor here. I love the fact that I am able to join you in this room for live preaching, or if you are watching out on the patio on the VIP seating, love you all out there, glad you're there. Or if you're watching later in the week because we are recording these and posting them, uh, welcome if you are receiving this content later. Uh, It is so good to be with you today, so, so good. So, in my experience, teaching and preaching, I have found that whenever there is something placed upon my heart, when that is there, it is usually for a reason, and usually that reason is related to whatever my current struggle is. In a way, as I am preparing to preach, I am also preaching to myself in the moment. And so today, I, uh, we're going to talk about what it's like to be stuck And I am going to share with you about a time I was really, really stuck. Now, if you know a little bit about me, you know that I was born and raised on the East Coast on Long Island, New York. It will always be my homeland. I got one woohoo. Yeah. (laughs) Thank thank you for that mercy clap. Um, But my dad, my dad was born and raised in upstate New York. And so on one of our many trips up to his land of origin, we, of course, had to visit the only thing that upstate New York is known for, Niagara Falls. (laughs) Now, I was six years old, and I was so excited to see it after hearing about it, reading about it, books and pictures, the size, the scope, the sound, the power, the sheer majesty of it all. But when we arrived, the only thing I could see was nothing because I was four feet tall and every adult was crowded around the railing trying to get a good look. So finally, after standing there with what felt like forever, I managed to weasel my way to the front of the observation deck and I came face to face with the railing that separated me from the 75,000 gallons of water per second flowing over the falls. So, of course, I did what any normal six-year-old child would do in that moment. I placed my head against the metal bars and then forced my head through the metal bars, and I craned my neck to get a better view of the falls, and finally, I could see all of Niagara Falls from top to bottom. It was amazing. Everything was fine until I tried to get out. (laughs) I couldn't back my head out. Funny thing about ears... When you're moving this way and they're pressing against your head, it's great. But if you take your hand and place it behind your ear and then try to move forward, the circumstance changes entirely, okay? So it took a good eight to 10 minutes of my mom panicking and tourists laughing and my dad and my uncle trying to bend steel far enough to free my cranium from its newfound prison until I was finally unstuck. And you want to know what the worst part of that story was? That was the second time that had happened to me in my life. Uh, The year before was in a Ferris wheel pod at an amusement park, okay? So it's definitely a fool me once, shame on me scenario. (laughs) Now, whether it is physical or metaphorical, being stuck isn't fun. And when we feel stuck in our lives, we may perceive ourselves as unable to progress or move forward in our lives. And it's 
often characterized by a feeling of being trapped or limited or stagnant in our current circumstances. Whether it's related to personal goals, relationships, your career, any aspect of your life, as a result, we feel frustrated. We feel restless. We're longing for change or growth, but we don't have the clarity or the motivation to break free from the perceived constraints. We all have times when we're stuck. My question to you is, what does it feel like when you are spiritually stuck? And I raise this question of our stuckness because it can stifle a lot of good things in our lives. I think it affects our whole life. And so I think we need to understand when and how we get there, and more importantly, how we get out. Now, there are ways in which we can will ourselves out of feeling stuck. Conventional wisdom will tell you just to find something that makes you happy. And that's not necessarily bad advice. It's just incomplete. If you're not convinced, ask someone who's gotten everything they've ever wanted just how happy they are. It is just as the fictional character Don Draper uh, on TV, Mad Men, tells his clients in advertising, happiness is just a moment before you need more happiness. Pursuing happiness may help us get unstuck for a time, but it does not speak to the deeper desires of the soul. It is not adequate for our whole life. But if we are willing to resist the conventional wisdom of culture and lean into the covenantal wisdom of God, we will discover that when we are spiritually stuck or stagnant, the solution is not happiness, but rather holiness. Simply put, pursuing a holy life is worth your whole life. And so for today, we're going to look uh, at Scripture, at the Bible, and this is the first letter of Peter, an apostle and follower of Jesus Christ, to fellow believers in the first century that were under the rule of the Roman Empire. And this letter was likely written shortly before his martyrdom. And its purpose, its point was to give the reader, the hearer, direction on how to live faithfully and with wisdom in tumultuous times and to remind them that even though they themselves might feel stuck or as outcasts or exiles, they can still find a whole life hope, not in happiness, but in holiness. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's some context. Peter, this author, had experienced firsthand the challenge and the conflict of living in more than one community. He was born a child of two worlds, raised in the Jewish tradition, but surrounded by the politics and the power of the Roman occupiers, whose values and morals clashed with his own. And then as Peter, this author, he enters into adulthood and begins to follow Jesus Christ, he finds himself at odds with the, not only the pluralistic world around him, but also his own history and origin. And I share all this to make the case that our experience in the present age, you and I, is not so different from Peter's. 
because we each come from a background or a history that we've had to endure or reformat as we grow while also finding ourselves on occasion at odds with the world around us. And even if you're sitting here now and you find yourself inclined to agree with the ideas and beliefs of this era, this moment, whatever they may be, you would probably acknowledge that everything is not as it should be. There are some really broken things in the present tense, just as they were in the past. And how do we as humans deal with that tension? When we are faced with an internal dissonance, we separate our thoughts and our feelings into different compartments. Philosopher Peter Rollins once said, we live in a storage space between who we are and who we want to be. If I have a relationship with who you are, I also have a relationship with who you aren't, who you hope to be. We each have different aspects of ourselves. The person we need to be at home is not always the person that we need to be at school or at work or at church, and that's normal. We're not duplicitous. But if we're being honest, everyone is a little duplicit-ish. This compartmentalization is complicated because these facets of ourselves inform how we act and think in different places. So Peter's instruction to the church, both then and now, is to help bring consistency to who we are by having a reorientation towards holiness. So with that in mind, let's look at these verses again individually. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action Discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Peter was a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, but the process of his discipleship came through discipline. If you read the gospel accounts, you'll begin to see a pattern with Peter. Uh, He has a knack for saying or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time always. If you've heard the phrase, open mouth, insert foot, Peter's mantra would be open mouth, insert Buick, okay? But his transformation came through this time that he spent with Jesus. There began to be a consistency in his conduct through the discipline of discipleship. Some audience participation here. Does anyone know what Peter did before he became a professional disciple? What was his livelihood? Very good, fisherman. Now, I am not a fisherman, but I do have a salty side to myself. And I would argue that maybe you do too. And I name that because when we are not disciplined, we can easily become disgruntled, unhappy, disappointed, and displeased people. And here's Peter's word of caution to us when we don't have that discipline. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our choice to seek happiness over holiness is a desire born of ignorance. We're not acknowledging the tension in ourselves. We're ignoring it by building compartments to contain it. But that containment doesn't work. It isn't consistent. By separating our happiness and our holiness, this is how we get spiritually stuck. 
And so I would pose to you this. What would your life look like if you took down the barrier between who you are and who you hope to be? What if you decided to remove the railing between your happiness and your holiness instead of occasionally just forcing your head through the bars once in a while? God designed us to enjoy happiness, but it is through the process of holiness to live in accordance with God's priorities rather than ourselves, to be different on purpose from the world around us, and to have consistency in our character. Let me say that another way. You will lose a lot of holiness trying to chase happiness, but you'll never lose happiness in the pursuit of holiness. And that's why pursuing a holy life is worth your whole life. But what is holiness? This begs the question. And I recognize if you're new to church, new to faith, like that's the word holy, that's a non-rational word. It's a theological word. So other than preparing our hearts and minds, having this discipline, how do we take something that's conceptual and make it actionable? How do we get unstuck? How do we make ourselves holy? And the answer might surprise you. We don't. Verse 17. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages, for your sake, through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. It is important to note that the recipients of the letter, this letter, the hearers of this text, they would have resonated deeply with Peter's use of the word exile. For just as the Jewish people lived in exile in the ancient world, the first Christians lived in exile in a first-century, power-hungry, violent Roman society. They were considered unpatriotic by their neighbors and accused of all sorts of false offenses. These people were completely stuck. You know, one of the most amazing things about the beaches of Long Island is that you can drive right onto the beach in certain areas. Like, it's completely open. You can just take your car and drive right on. And we do this regularly as a family. We drive to the shore, back the vehicle right up to the shoreline, and just toss everything out and just have a great day. But if you've ever driven on soft sand before, you know how important it is to air down your tires. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen people with brand new, massive SUVs or pickup trucks, all this torque, this power, they get stuck in the sand and they are absolutely dumbfounded that they can't move. And so what do they do? They put the hammer down on that accelerator and that fully inflated tire becomes a shovel, digging them deeper and deeper and deeper into the sand. I say this because sometimes when we are stuck, we'll struggle or we'll fight to free ourselves. But if we want to find freedom when we are spiritually stuck, the solution isn't to power up, but rather power down. With that in mind, let's look at these verses again. 17, if you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear 
during the time of your exile. So Peter encourages them to acknowledge God with a reverent fear. And this isn't from a place of horror. This is from a place of honor. For God, your God, is the one who sets things right. In other words, do not fear your circumstances. Do not fear your situation. Instead, live your life in recognition of the one who oversees those things. And when we place our power outside of ourselves, we are reminded of the work that God has done on behalf of humanity. Next verse, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. In the ancient world, it was believed that in order for you to become reconciled to the divine, something precious must be offered. And in the Jewish context, it was often something like an animal. So here, Peter is reminding the readers that through Christ's death and resurrection, humanity has been ransomed from the influence and the power of evil, and that this is the way it was always meant to be. Next verse, he was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope set on God. Acknowledging the power of God in our pursuit of holiness, that's our divine destiny. We're not meant for perfection. That was never the point. The purpose was to shift the focus of ourselves onto the holiness of God. Want to find a way to remember that? We needed a holy shift, if you will. (laughs) I really thought that would garner some more laughter, but (laughs) I like to wake you up in the middle of a sermon so that you're paying attention. Now look, sure. We might be able to empower ourselves into acting on what we believe is whole, wholesome behavior, right living, right thinking, being good for goodness sake. But what the author is saying, what the author is trying to get us to understand is that true holiness is nothing without the power of God. Now, you've heard me say that it is far better to pursue holiness instead of happiness, and I believe that that is true, but... I also believe that it is super dangerous to force, to impress yourself into holiness alone and on your own. You might check every single box. You might fulfill every moral edict. You might even become to believe that you are spiritually progressing, that you are powered up. But without the surrender of ourselves, all of our efforts are just that, efforts. And if we keep exerting ourselves toward perfection without acknowledging God, we won't find redemption, but rather resentment, feeling indignation towards those who are so undisciplined, even becoming fixated on the faults of others. I'm going to read you a long quote here from 18th century Bishop Francis de Sales, and I want you to tune in because I think this thing is fire. This is a great quote. Okay, get ready. Everyone paints devotion according to his own passions and fancies. Someone giving to fasting thinks himself very devout if he fasts, although his heart may be filled with hatred. Much concerned with sobriety, he doesn't care to wet his tongue with wine or even water, but won't hesitate to drink deep of neighbor's blood by detraction and gossip. Another person thinks himself devout because he daily recites a vast number of prayers, but after saying them, he utters the most disagreeable 
arrogant and harmful words at home and among the neighbors. Another gladly takes a coin out of his purse and gives it to the poor, but he cannot extract kindness from his heart to forgive his enemies. Another forgives his enemies, but never pays his creditors unless compelled to do so by force of law. All of these individuals are usually considered to be devout, but they are by no means such. Many persons clothe themselves with certain outward actions connected with holy devotion, and the world believes that they are truly devout and spiritual, whereas they are, in fact, nothing but copies and phantoms of devotion. Phantoms of devotion. This is a counterfeit holiness. And you've seen this before. Everybody knows someone who knows someone that's like this. And if you don't, well, see me after the service because I might have some really bad news for you. <laughs> this is the, one of the more unfortunate ways in which people of faith, we become spiritually stuck. There is a pattern throughout the gospel narratives in which people like this, who behave like this, encounter Jesus. They're known as Pharisees. And they often believe themselves spiritually superior and holy in every way. And consequently, because of the harm that they inflicted upon people, Jesus reserved his harshest criticisms exclusively for them. This is meant to serve as a forewarning to us today that when we attempt to pursue God, pursue holiness without God, we do so to our own detriment. If we attempt to pursue holiness without humility, we will become consumed by hostility or hypocrisy. And if you're sitting there wondering how to discern what holy is and what it isn't, I found it helpful to ask this question of yourself. Is what I am pursuing or consuming creating more love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control because if it is not, it is not of the Spirit. True holiness does not harm. It can only heal. And this is why pursuing a holy life is worth your whole life because if we are not careful, we might just lose it to a lesser cause. On to the last part of our text for today, verse 22. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. So Peter concludes the first chapter of this letter with a word of exhortation to the church, instructing them to love one another deeply from the heart because they have had discipline and they have surrendered themselves. This is the transformation of the inner self. Christians, these Christians, they're a new creation. They're companions on a journey of holiness, born of God's word, to lift one another up in a renewing work that goes on and on and on. This is what the church was always meant to be. I don't know about you, but when I feel stuck in my own life, uh, I crave something new. I could spend hours researching a new product 
or a new place I want to visit, making a list of new experiences or places I want to eat. But all of that is temporary. It's superficial. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find fresh ways to free myself. And sure, it's fun, but it isn't fulfilling. And what is the one thing that all of that work has in common? Me. I am completely self-centered in those moments. With that in mind, let's look at these last verses. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Love isn't logical. Love isn't convenient. A genuine love that comes deeply from the heart means that at times, you and I, we will be inconvenienced. Love takes the focus off of ourselves and it places it onto one another. And it is the result of obedience to truth. Love is the thing that matters most. Verse 23, you've been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God for all flesh is like grass and all glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. When I reflect back on my own life, my own story, I can see various times where I have compartmentalized my spirituality. And by doing so, I didn't allow my life to be informed by the things that are eternal. Everything was temporary, including my own happiness. And just like the grass and the flowers, it withered and it died. But there have been also times in my life on my spiritual journey of great surrender. When I look back on the last few years, uh, my wife, Rochelle, and myself, we had to put a lot of prayer and a lot of thought into relocating here, what it would mean for our family to leave the place that we were both born and raised, to take our children out of school in February of 2020. That's something. Selling the house, we put a ton of work into thinking we would make all of our memories in it. Imagining that we travel back to New York to see family and friends regularly, only to get hit with a worldwide pandemic, and we watched all of those relationships suffer. And then leaving the church of 15 years that I loved and helped start, only to jump into something, some, some things that were really challenging here at Menlo. If I was to present you with a list of pros and cons on paper, you would think that I was intentionally trying to ruin my own life. <laughs> It would be fair to say that we walked away from all of our happiness. We should have been frustrated. We should have been angry. We should have been sad. We should have been upset. And yet, there was something about our calling, something about our obedience that brought out a lot of love, love for ourselves, love for one another, love for our family, love for others, and an enduring faith that just quite frankly, defied all conventional wisdom. We discovered that there is a lot of beauty in obedience. And our story isn't just ours, it's yours. You also have a calling, something in your life that requires obedience. And through prayer and discernment, maybe you found it. And if that's you, that's great. But if you haven't yet, I sincerely hope that you do. And look, it won't be easy. 
There might be some happiness that you have to walk away from, but I also really believe that it could be worth it. The late Tim Keller once wrote, if you understand what holiness is, you come to see that real happiness is on the far side of holiness, not on the near side. Holiness gives us new desires and brings old desires into line with one another. An enduring faith will sustain you, it'll save you, and it'll bring new desires and new dreams. And this is why pursuing a holy life is worth your whole life. So as we close our time together, I ask you, whether you are a person of deep faith or you find yourself on the fringes, you're not really sure, are you willing to consider trading a temporary happiness for the transformative work of holiness? And yes, that is a real question with real implications. And so here are some practical things that might help you on this journey. First, pray. Pray. Ask God how to live a disciplined and decompartmentalized life, to take down the walls that divide you internally, to be the same person of consistent character in every place that you inhabit, to maybe stop doing the thing that the version of you in this moment wouldn't be caught dead doing. Pray. Talk to God. Secondly, ponder. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to live a humbled, humbled and surrendered life to the Spirit, to not seek holiness alone, but to accept it as part of our divine destiny, to stop performing religious practices in an attempt to become perfect, to trust God for the work that has already been completed in you, and to have authenticity and accountability in your relationships. Ponder what that would look like. And lastly, progress. Take that step. What happiness are you willing to walk away from in the pursuit of holiness? What is the thing that is too precious or too private in your life that you could never consider leaving it behind? Now, all of these things, these steps, they're meant to serve as steps that we can take to start moving in the right direction. I mentioned earlier that I myself have felt stuck recently, and that's something that can just spill over into other aspects of your life. So one of the things I recently tried doing, just to shake things up as part of my program here, I started running. (laughs) You can tell the pain in my voice, right? Two or three times a week, short distances, but really running. And do you want to know what I discovered? It hurts. It really hurts, especially if you haven't done it in a long time, especially when you're about to turn 40. And I say this to you because if you are spiritually stuck and you decide to make the effort to trade your happiness for holiness, there's going to be a spiritual soreness. Change is going to make things hurt. But don't lose heart. Do not be discouraged because we are not meant to do it alone. I leave you with the words of author C.S. Lewis. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the wisdom and the direction of your word. Thank you for the opportunity for us to learn 
from letters and texts and books written so long ago that have power and presence and purpose in our life right now, would you help us, each and every single one of us, discern the difference between our happiness and our holiness, and as we do, to take down that railing, to take down that wall that separates us? Would you help us to not pointlessly pursue holiness, but allow us to have authenticity and accountability in fellowship, in connection with one another, a true and genuine holiness, being mindful that you have done the heavy lifting in that. God, would you help us to have the grace to love one another despite our differences? As we work through this process of being disciplined and also surrendering, would you give us the boldness and the courage to confront the things in our own life that that happiness that perhaps we need to consider walking away from. I pray that for myself. I pray that for every person in this room. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.